And I am going to read verses 4 through 9 in what is called a servant song. Pray, and they will get after it. If you would stand to your feet as I read God's word, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. The prophet said, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens my ear, as those to hear as those who are taught. He says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Father, I pray that in these minutes, as I just prayed, you would stir our hearts over Calvary's love. May we... Abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of Christ's wounds. Lord, I need your help big time. And I know that people here, apart from your spirit, cannot hear your voice. So please, Lord, open our eyes and unstop our ears. Help us not to be the rebellious ones who don't give a rip about your word. But may your word find good soil in our hearts so that we walk out here less carnal and more like Christ. And perhaps somebody would walk out of here no longer condemned under the wrath of God, but forgiven a child of God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you may grab a seat. I want to ask you a song as we begin. Do you like love songs? Who here likes love songs? I knew Arpith would answer. That's for, he's a romantic at heart. That's beautiful. God likes love songs. You say, well, I know that. I've read the Song of Solomon. Well, yes, that's there, and that's there by divine intention, but I'm not even talking about that. The Bible has many songs about God's love for us. I just read from Isaiah chapter 50. In the book of Isaiah, written 700 years before Christ, There are four servant songs, chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and then chapter 53. And all four of these servant songs about the suffering servant point prophetically to Jesus Christ. Have you heard of the expression servant songs? It's in the book of Isaiah. Now, let me give you a little context. Isaiah lived 800, between 7 and 800 years before the birth of Christ. And Isaiah had a ministry of prophesying about hardcore judgment that was going to come on the people of Israel for their rebellion, for their idolatry, for their evil, and for their injustice. And for that, he was a very, very popular prophet, said no one. He was not invited to conferences. 
That was Isaiah. And he says in chapters 1 through 39 that God is going to take this pagan nation called Babylon and another pagan nation called Assyria, and that will be the tool upon which he brings judgment on his people for the rebellion and evil and justice and all the rest. And in fact, that goes down in an utterly catastrophic catastrophic uh, event in which they come in, they ransack Israel, and they haul many of them off in carts into Babylonian captivity. Can you just imagine that? A foreign army coming in, dominating us, and then carting us off into captivity. That's exactly what happened. But even in those hardcore chapters of prophesied and realized judgment, chapter 1 through chapter 39, there are glimmers of hope as God promises that in spite of Israel, he's going to keep his covenant promises for the good of the nations. And thus, maybe you've heard Christmas messages. You probably have here from Isaiah 7, 14, for instance, that a virgin would conceive, right? Or Isaiah 9, 6, that his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor and all the rest. But once you get to chapters 40 through 66, these glimmers of hope become more brilliantly radiant, specifically focused on an individual in four songs about the suffering servant. Now, that's the context. Why do I call them love songs, though? The reason I call these songs about the suffering servant love songs is because it was the love of God that compelled (coughs) and motivated the cross of Christ. Can you think of some verses that connect the love of God with the cross of Christ? Maybe you can this morning. Maybe you can call one out. Call one out here. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son. 1 John 4, 10, herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That means wrath-absorbing sacrifice for our sins. Even Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Now, last week was not what you would call a warm and fuzzy message, was it? No, it wasn't. Matthew chapter 7, a message on judgment from Jesus' own words. And as much as we need to hear those sermons, and we do, by the way, Isaiah preached a lot of them, chapters 1 through 39. I believe that as we hear sermons like that, as our thinking about God is, is, is we, we dispense with, you know, the tailor-made views of Jesus, right? The whittled-down views of Jesus, the airbrush views of Jesus, the highly edited, nearly fictitious, if not fully fictitious views of Jesus. Once we displace that, I do think we need to be reminded all the more of the true love of the true living God, especially in times of suffering. Anyone ever here really doubted that God actually loves them. Anybody here? Let's, let's be honest. Anybody honest? Like God really cares? Come on. We all have been in that place, right? We can particularly doubt that in times of suffering, whether it's suffering that we bring on ourselves, just like Israel did. They brought on their captivity. Sometimes we bring suffering on ourselves because we choose to do it our way, right? 
And life smacks us upside the head because we did not follow God's way. And other times we suffer just because we are people living in a fallen world. But whatever the case, what we need are these love songs. Because it's fresh taste of God's love. It's fresh experiences of God's love. Fresh apprehensions of God's love that I think in the final analysis stirs us to greater faith and greater repentance, and greater service, and greater love, and greater witness. And so for three weeks in a little Easter series called Love Songs, The Love of God and the Suffering Servant, we are going to dial in on these, on two of these uh, songs about the suffering servant. Today, we're going to look at the third one I just read, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9, and what we're going to focus on is the suffering servant's determination. The suffering servant's determination. And we're going to see, first of all, this morning, the incredible depth of his determination to go through whatever he had to go through out of love in order to save his people. Okay? The incredible depth of his determination. Now, I am not a big movie guy. That is because I have a knack of falling asleep six minutes and 47 seconds into every, I just can't make it through movies. My family will tell you that. Like, it, it, we're, you're barely opened up and I'm asleep. But now for this movie, I actually watched it again this week. I, I did drift off a little bit. It was my second watching, so give me grace. But this movie, the first time I watched it in particular, I couldn't go to sleep on because it was so gripping. Movie called Unbroken. Have you seen that movie? Came out several years ago. And some people read the book, which tells the whole story. In that movie, it's about a guy named Louis Zapparini. He was an Olympic athlete uh, in long-distance running, um, later served as a bombardier on an aircraft in World War II. He was on a mission to find a downed aviator uh, across the Pacific. The engines failed on the aircraft. They crashed. Only three of, of 11 people on the crew survived. 47 days, he drifted in the open Pacific Sea. And it's crazy how much weight he lost in those 47 days. I mean, how many, how many pounds was he when he got off that? Like 69 pounds. Can you imagine that? He wasn't a big guy to begin with, but 69 pounds? Starvation? There was some day, the one day at the time they went six days without water. And that's like at the cusp of how far you can make it. He prayed and the Lord brought rain. Uh, They suffered dehydration, starvation, terrible sunburn. But 30 minutes into it, one of the three survivors says, we're not going to make it. We're going to die. And Louis is like, no, we're not. We're going to make it. Come on. Have faith. Have hope. And they finally did get rescued, but it wasn't quite a rescue. The Japanese military captured them. And he would spend three years in two different POW camps. And man, or two years in three, in three different POW camps. And it was really bad. In addition to the normal degradation you would expect a World War II prisoner of war to experience, once they found out that he was an Olympic athlete, and because he, he would not kowtow to them, he was targeted for particularly brutal and sadistic treatment at the hands of a Japanese sergeant named the Bird. Terrible stuff. You've seen it perhaps in the movie. You should watch it. But one day, they clean him up a little bit. They take him uh, out of the POW camp um, to a a city. It might have been, I can't remember what city. But they bring him to a radio station, 
They have him read a rather innocuous statement that says, I am not, I'm, I'm not dead, I'm actually alive. Uh, and then after that, they take him to a cafeteria that serves American-style food, um, all that he wants, all of that. And they say, hey, listen, if you keep on you know, doing these radio uh, readings, uh, you can stay here. You don't have to go back to the camp. You'll, you'll treat you great and all that. He will not kowtow, though, because he knows uh, they want him to really, you know, say stuff that would be, you know, not faithful, unpatriotic, or uh, all that. So he, he refuses to. He remains unbroken. So then they bring him back to the camp, and man, that's when that nasty man rolls his sleeves up all the more. At one point, they have the whole, all the POWs right there line up, and they all take a punch, like square in his face, full punch. And they weren't going to do it. He says, no, do it, do it. And he is just hammered blow after blow after blow, vicious beatings by uh, the bird. And then that one memorable part, remember, he's holding up that timber, and he has to hold it as long as he can, or they're going to beat him whenever he drops it. The guy remains unbroken. I thought, that that is an, quite an illustration, is it not, of resolute determination to be faithful, and a heroic illustration of that. But his heroic determination, I think, reflects the unrivaled determination of Jesus Christ to be faithful at all cost, at any cost at all. And I see this in our text in verse 7. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7 begins, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. We'll come back to that. He says, therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Do you see that expression? He says, I've, this is just Jesus speaking prophetically, 700 years before he came to earth. He says, therefore, I have set my face like a flint. Now, what in the world is that talking about? A flint is a very, very hard rock. And that was an expression deployed, used to communicate resolute determination in the face of any and all trial to any, all, any cost. Resolute determination. What's interesting, if you go to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament, when opposition to Jesus' ministry begins to heat up, Luke employs that same expression when he writes in Luke 9.51 that when the time for him to be lifted up drew near, that is to be lifted up to the cross, he set his face towards Jerusalem. That same expression there, set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. Now, if verse 7 is the play-by-play, verses 5 and 6 provide us the color commentary on what this resolute determinedness looked like. Look at the latter part of verse 5. Prophetically, Jesus says, the prophet Isaiah points forward to when Jesus would, would do this. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid, not my face, from disgrace and spitting. You know, there are times when Zamperini wavered. Understandably, right? Have you ever determined to do something that you end up quitting on or backing off on? You know, I remember our, our officers boot camp, 59% of the guys didn't make it tapped out or were kicked out. They quit. Maybe you've been on a ball team, practices were too much for you, quit. People quit on all kinds of things because it's hard in life, right? A job, a marriage, something. 
but not Jesus. He didn't even waver. He knew the cross was in front of him, and yet he never, in the slightest way, turned back. He says, I turned not backward. Incredible words, and really quite literally. Even even when someone knows they're going to take that shot, what do we instinctively do? You ever taken a shot to the face in a fight or something like that? What do you instinctively do? You flinch, right? It's instinctive. You flinch. Oh, not Jesus. Not Jesus. It says, again, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. He, he, like, here, here. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He was lovingly determined to experience all that he needed to experience in order to save his people. That's incredible, isn't it? Incredible love right there. Now, what I want you to do now is fast forward to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. Does anybody know how many trials Jesus would go through on earth in the days of his flesh? How many trials? It's a good framework to get in your thinking. He went through six trials, okay? Three of those trials were were before the, the Jewish or the religious authorities, and then the other three trials were before the Roman or civil authorities. And by the way, these were, to call them trials is being very gracious. It, it was a mockery of justice, right? There was no justice being dispensed. They were, they were a mockery of what would, we would think is a trial. But he did go through these six so-called trials. Trial number one happens in Matthew chapter 26. Jesus is betrayed and arrested. Remember that at zero dark 30 late at night in the garden? Commentators say 2 a.m. I'm not sure how they get there, but it was early, late at night, early in the morning, depending on how you look at it. And he's hauled off to the house of a Caiaphas, the high priest, which should tell you this is not a legit trial because trials happen in daylight, not in darkness, right? And you're ushered off to a public building, not a private residence. The whole thing is dirty. He's brought before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas has all these so-called witnesses um, lined up to speak against Jesus. Because he's already, if you look at the text, he's already determined he's worthy of death. But Jesus, in fulfillment of Isaiah 53, verse 6 or 7, we'll get there next week. When they asked him all those questions and they made all these accusations, what did Jesus say? What did he say? Not a thing. It says he opened not his mouth like a lamb is led to the slaughter. That's Jesus. We'll look at that next week. Finally, Caiaphas, the the resident high priest, is so full of anger. He's just so frustrated because Jesus won't answer. He can't get traction with his false witnesses. He says, I adjure thee to tell us whether you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Look at this. Verse Sixty-three, have you, verse 62, the high priest stood up, have you no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? It says, Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, verse 63, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus says to him, people say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. I don't know what they're smoking when they say that. If you're looking for the words, 
I am God. You're not going to find that explicitly, explicitly, but he says he's God in so many different ways. He says, from now, you have said so, but now I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated where? At the right hand of power in coming when? And how? On the clouds of heaven. That's judgment. That's the king. That's the Lord of glory right there, is it not? Now, how did, how did they understand? Did they think, oh, he's just claiming to be, you know, a special man? No, they knew what he was claiming. Look at, look at the response. Verse 68, then the high priest tore his clothes, his robes, and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have heard now his blasphemy. What is the blasphemy they think that he's committing? Claiming to be God. Two other times you find in the Gospels that, listen, if somebody's not God and they claim to be God, that is blasphemy, right? But he happens to be God, so it's not. They weren't interested in truth. Are you interested in truth? Or are you just here doing the church thing? Do you want truth, truth that can rock your world for the good? Thank you. Somebody's saying yes out of the mouth of babes. Need 17 more of them. There we go, there we go, there we go. Now he rents his, his, his robe, he rips it, and that was an expression of, 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 of terror, you know, of, of your heart being broken. His heart wasn't broken, his heart was hard. It was just a theatrical display. And then, you know, this is how mobs work. What is your judgment? He says to all of them. They answered, he deserves death. Now, all of that was informative, but I did this cross-reference so we can see how this lines up with Isaiah 53. You see verse 67? Then they did what? They spit in his face. Did you read that anywhere from 700 years earlier? They spit in his face, it says. And they <laughs> struck him. And some slapped him. When a human is given the death penalty, there usually is a degree of sobriety that attends that decision, right? Things are somber because there's an understanding. We're talking about a human being here. Fiendish evil going on here. Because there's no sobriety here. There's devilish celebration mocking, and some slapped and saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And I tell you, Isaiah 52 was going down in time when that took place, trial number one. Now, how many trials did I say there were? Six. Three before what authorities? The Jewish authorities. Three before the Roman authorities. Let's go to trial number six before the Roman authorities. That's in Matthew chapter 27. Now, here's what's happening. Jesus Christ is before Pilate. We read about Pilate in the Creed. Pilate, this is interesting. The first three trials, Jesus is erroneously or wickedly um, judged guilty. But do you know that in all the three Roman so-called trials, he's actually declared innocent. So Pilate declares Jesus Christ innocent. He says, I see no guilt in this man. His wife says, watch out, this is an innocent man. But Pilate is a coward, like so many people. They're afraid to square up with the truth of God. 
He feared man before he feared God. And the scripture says, don't fear him who can destroy your body. Fear him who can destroy body and soul in hell. That's Jesus, Matthew 10, 28. He feared those who only could destroy his body. Because the religious leaders are inciting the mob out there. And even though he's declared Jesus Christ innocent, what, is, what, is, what do the mob end up saying when they're incited by the religious authorities? You remember this? They say, release Barabbas and do what with Jesus? Crucify him. Crucify another gospel. Crucify him. Crucify. They just start chanting, crucify him. Well, Pilate, he washes his hands. I'm here to tell you, you can't wash your hands of your own guilt. You can't baptize yourself out of your own guilt. You need another one to take away your guilt. So Pilate might have thought he was washing his hands. The only things he might have gotten off there was germs, not his sin. That's not how it works. It says, then he released for them Barabbas, verse 26, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Next week, I'm going to talk about that scourging process. It is appalling. But I just want to remind you that Jesus said, I turn not my back, right? They scourged his back so that his visage was so marred, Isaiah 52. Not what man is this, but is this a man? That's how beaten he was. We'll come back to that. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion because everyone likes a good joke before him. And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed. Here, hold the reed in his hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail, king of the Jews. And they spit on him. And took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. And there you have, yet again, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 50, that he would be slapped, beaten, mocked, and spit upon. Isaiah 53 vividly lays this out again. We're going to get to that next week. But the point is clear. Why don't you unpower some of the things that you always gaze at? I need to do this and gaze at this truth. I don't feel the love of God for me. Have you ever taken time to sit in the shadow of the cross? Huh? Right? And let our hearts be stirred by all that he willingly and lovingly endured for us. Right? Even before the cross, he was suffering vicariously that is in our place. Now, I want to read a quote from a little devotional book called The Cross He Bore by Frederick Leahy, put out by Banner of Truth. And he just, he just ties a ribbon on the point I'm trying to make, that he was lovingly determined with incredible depth to see his way all the way to the cross. He writes, at that suffering, humiliated figures stood there. Humiliated figures stood there. His tormentors despised him, Jesus, in their hearts. They thought that he was utterly helpless in their hands. No, how wrong they were. Christ was never in retreat, never merely passive. At this moment, he was actively and voluntarily exposing himself to the fury of his enemies. Now came the fulfillment of those prophetic words 
I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgust, from disgrace and spitting. Imagine that spitting in the creator's face. Maybe that's what we do when we say, I'm my way, not your way. This was costly obedience on the Savior's part as he deliberately gave his back to those who struck him, enduring patiently and meekly this gratuitous torture. And he quotes E.J. Young, the old commentator, quote, there's a majesty in this description. As though the servant were in full control of the situation, he sets him forth he sets himself forth as the one who acts. He was, there's some depth in that determination, right? To withstand everything for you. Now, how many Jewish trials and Roman trials were there? I end this first point and get to the only other point, the second one, just a moment, but I end with this. There's actually a seventh trial coming. It's your trial. Or I could say, what are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with Jesus? There's a verdict for you to make. Jesus was unfairly treated guilty, right? So that we could be unfairly treated innocent or righteous. Now, your verdict is this. I don't need you, Jesus. Okay. That's your verdict. And you will go into eternity with your sins on your account. And to say it in a very understated way, that will not go well for you. It will not go well. Or you can look to Jesus Christ and say, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for me. He didn't deserve it. I deserve it, but he did it out of love for me, and he took my hit, and he rose again, and I want him in my life. I don't want to just pray a sinner's prayer. I want this sinner to turn my life over to the Savior. What is your verdict on this? What shall a prophet a man, quoted this last week, to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? I hope you see the incredible depth of his determination to do whatever it took to save his people. Now, we turn the corner and we look at the source of his determination. What's the source of such determination, such unrivaled, unprecedented determination? Somebody might say, well, Jesus was able to do this because he is God. And right you are, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man, right? I mean, he slept, he ate, he prayed. He wept, he bled. While we ought not ever to diminish his deity, we ought also not to diminish his humanity, his sinless humanity. And I believe this third servant song gives us three things that fortify Jesus to be resolutely determined to fulfill the mission for which he was called into the world to save his people from their sin. And I think those same three things can fortify us to be resolutely faithful in the mission to which God has called us to Christ, to live for Christ in all of life. Matter of fact, can I ask you how you're doing with that? This last year, how are you doing as a witness of Jesus Christ? How are you doing in honoring the Lord and what he says what a husband should look like or what a wife should look like? 
or a single should look like, or an employee should look like, anything. How, how are you doing? God can fortify us with this servant song to reflect Christ in all of life, in the Golgothas, the bad, hard spots, and also the good spaces and everywhere in between. So here they are. The first thing I see as we answer the question, what was the source of this determination, the strength to, to walk it out? The first thing is, is Jesus Christ exhibited a God dependence. Let, let me show you a few scriptures right here, back in Isaiah. Verse 4, he says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear. Verse 7, but the Lord God helps me. Verse 9, behold, the Lord God helps me. Now that expression, Lord, with all caps in the Hebrew is, is, is a word that really uh, highlights the sovereignty and the power of Lord God Almighty, the Lord God. If you were to study out the life of Jesus Christ on earth, you'll find this, that he early and often and really all the time prayed to the Lord God, that is his Father. When did Jesus pray in his life? Well, when he kicked off his public ministry, at his baptism he's praying. The scripture tells us that after a long day of ministry, he would pray. That's not really what I want to do after a long day of ministry. He did. He would pray late into the night. He would wake up super early in the morning while it's still dark to pray. Jesus Christ prayed every step as it were to Golgotha. There is a whole chapter in the Gospels devoted to recording the prayer that he has to the Father. A whole chapter on nothing but prayer of the second person that God had to the first. That's John 17, the high priestly prayer. Even, this, this is instructive for us when we're in the midst of a crisis, on the eve of the crisis of the ages, he's in the garden and he prays to the Father, right? He even prays on the cross. And he even experiences what we experience and we feel like we do sometimes, unanswered prayer. Eloi, Eloi, lava sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Answer? Perhaps the best commentary is simply Luke 15, I'm sorry, Luke 5, 16, which says, Jesus would withdraw the desolate places and What's your prayer life look like? Shamefully, I, and so often weak in temptation, in extending forgiveness, and holding on to some offense. We can love, we can service, we can witness because I am not really praying and experience the empowering and emboldening of prayer. Even the scripture says this kind, kind cannot happen except by prayer and fasting, right? So we're not, we're not like in some kind of prayer Olympics here, but honestly, what does your prayer life look like? Like really, like if there was a spreadsheet somewhere that recorded your prayers, would there even be anything on that sheet? Apart from prayer, it is impossible 
to walk in resolute determination in all of life, right? And what God has called us to be and how he called us to live. Prayer is what fuels faithfulness. It did for Jesus and it must for us, right? So the first fortification is God dependence, prayer. The second fortification is the word of God. Now this, this is crazy. Check this out. The incarnate word, Jesus Christ, was fortified by the inscribed word. The word of flesh was fortified by the word written. Now, where do you see that? I see it in verses 4 and 5. Look at this. End of verse 4. Well, let's, let's stop, start at the top of verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Jesus speaks the word. He sustains others with the word. Why? Because his ear was open to the word. Do you see that? And he was not rebellious. This, I should note, is in contrast to Israel. Israel felt God had forsaken them and God had forgotten them in their exile. I want to show you that. I want you to turn back to chapter 49 and look at verse 14. But Zion said, verse 14, Zion meaning Israel, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. That's what Israel was saying. Do you see that? What does God go on to say? Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, God says of Israel. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. That's a reference to the cross. But man, oh man, we're a bit like Israel. They're in exile. Why, why are they in exile? I tried to give you a little bit of context in, in the beginning, not to be some Bible commentator, but so we understand what's going on here. Why was Israel in exile? God was just kind of being, you know, flippant. Oh, I'm just going to send you off in exile. Why? Because of their sin and dis their willful sin, right, and disobedience over ages, over a long time. It was God disciplining them for their good. And yet, come on, let's just be real. We are a bit like Israel. We choose to do life on our own, either in a real big way or in some compartment. We experience the rotten fruit of doing life our own way, and then we get mad at God. Or we just say, well, he's forgotten me, he's forsaken me. And so in this servant song right before it, God addresses that mentality because he cares about you. He is not, if you're in Christ, he's not forsaken you. He's not forget, forgotten you. You might, be, you might be suffering. It might just be because you're in a fallen world. It might be because you just made some stupid, sinful decisions. We all have. It's ownership, but we'll get to that. Look at verse one. Thus says the Lord. Okay, that, that's your mentality? I, I've forgotten you? I've forsaken you? Because you're next to Okay, let me address that. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce? Mother being um, a metaphor for Israel. 
Where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. It's like God is saying, you ought to think this one through just a little bit. Ray Ortland has a wonderful commentary on this. I want to read a few sentences from his commentary on what's going on in verse 1. Okay, all right. Pull out your mother's divorce certificate out of the file. Look at it. What does it say? What are the charges there? Was it my failure, God says, as a husband that ruined our marriage? Or was it your mother's? Is it really fair to me? Is it even really helpful to you for you to keep blaming me for your captivity in Babylon? End quote. We can put ourselves in there, can we not? The point here is this. Stop closing your ears and hardening your heart. You say, I'm not going like this. Okay, how much exposure do you have to the word? Take ownership. That's what he's trying to tell them to do, to take ownership. Verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? We're called to fear the Lord and obey the voice of the servant, ultimately the voice of Jesus. Jesus, I just closed the second fortification with this. Jesus was the perfect servant, right? He heard and he obeyed the voice of God. And so must we too if we would be resolutely determined in our walk with God. If we would be. Verse 5, the Lord God opened my ear and I was not rebellious. You know, Jesus said stuff like this. I only do the things which the Father tells me. You read that in the Gospels. He says, my meat is to do the Father's will. He says, I always do those things that please the Father. He listened to the voice of the Father. So I just want to ask you, I want to ask you, is your ear open? Is your ear really open? Do you hunger and thirst for the word of God? Man, I'm just, I'm just going to, I'm going to, our, our Sunday school. Do you understand the depth of the teaching these kids are getting upstairs and learning the Ten Commandments? How many of you could quote the Ten Commandments? You say, well, I don't know if I could. The first four are about how we love God. The next six are about how we love our neighbor. And in the Sunday school that was for adults down here, how, do, how can I read the Bible? It was such a great class on how we can rightly read the Word of God. Some people don't even read the Word of God or they misread it. Do you hunger? Is your ear open? Is your ear open to the Word of God received from this very pulpit right now? And our ministries and your own personal study? Is it cherished? Is it absorbed? Is it pursued? Is it treasured? Or do you... Like Israel, think, hmm, real happiness, real hope, real health is found somewhere else. God's word can fortify you to be resolutely determined and faithful, just like Jesus was. I didn't really think this message was going to be as strong as it's coming out, but I think it's coming out strong, but this is from the Lord, okay? So there's God-dependence prayer, there's the word of God, and finally, and this is so sweet, this is so beautiful. There is the big picture. Look at verse 7. Jesus said, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. You're like, disconnect. 
I've not been disgraced, he says. Wait a second. You gave your back to those, you were struck, <laughs> you were slapped. And probably to me, when I read that, the biggest offense is, you know, somebody spitting, throwing spit on another's face. So how can Jesus say, I've not been disgraced? You should read the Bible and ask those questions. I don't get that. Does anybody feel that tension there? He was disgraced. The answer, if you keep reading, that's always a good way to find context, keep reading. He says, therefore, I set my face like a flint, resolute determination, and I know I shall, future tense, not be put to shame. What's he talking about? Jesus looked downrange, and he saw the big picture of what he had come to accomplish, redeeming people from every nation, every tribe, every language, every people around the throne of God. Doesn't it say in Hebrews 12 too, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured this cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He looked to the end. When Louis Zamperini was training for uh, track when he was a kid. He had a, he had a great older brother who just poured into him. And it, it's, it's a crazy story. The kid actually started smoking when he was five. You can read about that. And so he goes to his first race and he says, I was so out of shape, I, I couldn't do anything. But his brother kept on training him. And his brother has this great quote. I bet some of you can quote it right now. A moment, somebody help me out here. A moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. He held on to that. He trained like other people did not train. Even he, go, he gets a track scholarship to USC, the old Coliseum. He runs up the stairs after practice. He say, what's so significant about that? In those days, coaches did not believe it was good for the heart to run up or run a flight of stairs. He did that on his own after practice. He knew that a moment of pain was worth a lifetime of glory. He had the record for like 16 years of the fastest mile in college, four minutes and eight seconds, crazy fast. But do you know when he was at that POW camp, he would call to mind that a moment of pain is worth a lifetime of glory. Now, I think it's a great statement. I think, that, I think we can just apply that as is for life. <laughs> Look to the big picture. But I want to baptize this in the gospel. I think Jesus would say, a lifetime of pain is worth an eternity of glory. Because that's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, for we do not lose heart, old version, we don't faint, we don't quit, we don't give in, we don't throw in the towel, we don't tap out. Why? For this light momentary affliction, I'll be honest with you, it doesn't seem light a lot. And it sure doesn't seem momentary, but in light of eternity, it is. So he says, this light momentary affliction is producing for you an eternal weight of glory. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporary, and the things that are unseen are eternal. Now, did you see how point two tied in with point three? 
the big picture I get from Scripture, right? This light momentary affliction. And so I think this truth can fortify you when your flesh says, man, just tap out, just quit whatever it is that you want to quit. You fight back and you say, nope, flesh, I'm not going to do that because a lifetime of pain. And by the way, we have a lot of joy in our lifetimes. God gives us joy in so many wonderful ways. But a lifetime of pain is worth an eternity of glory. In the face of his suffering, Jesus had, I'm wrapping this up, okay, had some bold confidence. Let's read on verse 8. It says, I know that I shall not be put to shame. Big picture stuff. He who vindicates me is near. What is that referencing there? Well, the third message is going to be devoted to resurrection in the, in the song of, uh, in these four so- suffering servant songs, tongue twister. But let me just hit right here what vindicates is highlighting. This is pointing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. New Testament preaching constantly affirmed and emphasized and put on blast that God raising Jesus from the dead was the vindication that he is who he said he is and could do what he said he would. You go to Acts chapter 2, and I was going to go there, but we won't. They say, he says, by wicked hands you slew and nailed to a cross, but God raised him from the dead. Chapter 3, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Chapter 13, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Jesus saw the big picture culminating in his resurrection. Do you see the big picture culminating in your resurrection? Because these are the first fruits of a, of a massive harvest. I love how he fires off three questions based on that. Three rhetorical questions followed by a statement. Who will contend with me? Let's stand up together. Come on. Who's my adversary? Let him come near me. Come on, chump. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Who, who, who? And then this great moth garment imagery. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Listen, man. Oppositions and difficulties, which seem so insurmountable sometimes, right, in life. They take sleep. They steal our peace. They sometimes rack us with worry, even anxiety. He says all of that is as durable as a wool sweater. A garment is against <laughs> moss. You're going to be eaten by the truth, by eaten by the big picture. Do you remember these words from Job? Job, I love Job. Such a deep, enigmatic book. In Job 19, Job says these words. He says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he's going to stand upon the earth. He's referencing Jesus Christ and his resurrection. And then he says of him, though my skin melts away, though my skin rots, though though I go into the ground, I will see him from my flesh. He saw the big picture. Listen, if Job was able to say that pre-cross and resurrection, how much more should we be able to say, I know my Redeemer lives and at the last, I will stand with him because he stood in for me. Prayer, the word, and remembering the big picture is what fortified Jesus to be resolutely determined. Do these truths mean anything to you this morning? Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached a message on this text entitled, The Redeemer's Face Set Like a Flint. 
And I quote him as he urged his church to imitate Christ's steadfast determination. Quote, he said, my great object is to lead you to love him who so loved you that he set his face like a flint in his determination to save you. O ye redeemed ones on whose behalf this strong resolve was made. Ye who have been bought by the precious blood of the steadfast, resolute Redeemer, come and think of him a while that your hearts may burn within you. We prayed that. And that your faces might be set like flints to live and die for him who lived and died for you. May this servant, servant song, song of the suffering servant from Isaiah chapter 50, sink deep into our hearts and stir us to live for him who lived for us in the good times and in the Golgothas and everything in between. This is the word of God. As the music team comes, I do appeal to the person here, you've never turned to Jesus Christ. A little bit more as they come on Louis Zamperini, and then we sing. He came back from the war, and he was experiencing a, a level of glory for being so heroic in the face of the 47 days at sea and POW camps and all the rest. He was unbroken on one level, but by his own words, Zamparini never came to terms with the brokenness of his own sin and rebellion against God. So after the glory faded off, he got married, a wonderful woman, but he began to turn to the bottle. You understand all the PTSD that he experienced and all that, he, that happened, but he, he, he went looking for love in all the wrong places, and he turned to the bottle, became an alcoholic. His wife said, I'm done. Can't do this anymore. Somebody invites her to a Billy Graham rally, and she gets saved, and she says, well, I can't do that. So she starts bringing his Christian friends around him, and he's like, they need to get away from me. I'm not into that. But finally, because he loves her, he doesn't want to lose his marriage, he goes to one of the Billy Graham rallies. And he walks out halfway through thinking this stuff is foolishness. And yet in the grace of God, his wife kept on appealing to him, and he, he went back a second time, and he said, it's like the Lord just stopped everything and dialed in on his heart. And he remembered all the prayers that he prayed on the raft, Lord, if you get me through this. He remembered all the prayers in the POW camp. And he was just, and, and he was so full of hate, this man, against the bird, that Japanese sergeant who, who tortured him. One night he actually woke up with his hands around his wife trying to choke her like she was the bird. He, was, he would fantasize about killing him. So he's a man racked with all kinds of emotions, understandably so, but he was. He was a prisoner, still a prisoner, he says. And yet when Graham preached, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he knew that he was in that all. Even all that he went through, he was in that all. But then when Graham told him God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, he knew. He knew that was the truth. He said in that moment, he would always said he was a Christian, but it was always up here and it never hit him in the heart, never changed his life. And in that moment, the miracle of conversion happened. And if I had time, I would tell you all that happened. But he, he, he went on live, making a, living a difference-making life. I don't know who you are. Maybe you, like Zamparini, could quote the gospel, but has the gospel invaded your heart 
do you know Jesus Christ? Father, please use these words. First of all, to fortify your people to live for you in all of life, in the ups and the downs and the in-betweens, knowing that this light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory as we press forward in dependence on you, guided and strengthened by your word, keeping the big picture in mind. Lord, I pray that we would really do business with you in this closing song. We turn these words back to you in prayer, proclamation to those around us. And Father, for anyone here who may have a form of godliness but has denied the power thereof, never really turned to Christ, I pray that today they would turn their lives over to Jesus Christ in truth. We thank you that you are mighty to save. We thank you, Jesus, for the depth of your loving determination to deal with and take on whatever it took to get to the cross, which we'll dial in on next week. But there you bore our sin, not in part, but in whole. We thank you that you are alive at the Father's right hand, ever living to make intercession for us. In fact, Lord, maybe you are summoning somebody to yourself right now, Jesus. If that's somebody here, may they turn to you. I ask in Christ's name, your name, Jesus, your mighty resurrected name. Amen.